Hey, welcome to the 1980 podcast. Today, I have a very, very cool guest, Russ Shoemaker. He's a fellow Pepperdine alum, and we're going to be talking about various different topics. So let's get into it. Hey, welcome back. Hey, Russ, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I'm Remind me how here. we met, because it was a very cool way we went up meeting. We did, yeah. Um, so I had put out a post online looking for some feedback on um, some marketing and uh, really just trying to get some input from people in my network on some marketing that I'm doing at World Vision and kind of how to position our corporate social responsibility work with with different corporations and uh you responded i think on linkedin and said hey you know I'd, I'd love to have a chat with you on this so we ended up connecting on that and it just took off from there and back and forth and now i asked you hey come join the podcast because he had similar uh we, we grew up we're around the same age kind of very similar i'm a zennial i think you're an older millennial and you had some nostalgia about past and so we'll talk a little yeah. bit about that pepperdine you kind of grew up your pepperdine grad mba program there I think we both went to the same campus there and beautiful campus. Really enjoyed that time there. Uh, what were some of your favorite moments in, in the MBA program? I mean, I loved the faculty. They were just so committed to student success. Um, I took a couple night classes and I mean, one professor would stay until 10, 11 p.m. helping students understand finance concepts and, and things like that. Um, and I, I, having studied at a couple different universities, I've never had such a dedicated faculty. And then just being with students from different industries and different backgrounds was really enjoyable. And I love learning. So anytime I get the chance to, to learn a new framework that helps me see the world in a new way and kind of put together just different different straws that I've been grasping at for a long time, and some of the classes really uh, did that for me. And so, you know, it was just a really great experience that I, I loved and, and highly recommend if anybody is interested in going to business school. Same as well. And I went to the public policy program back in 2005. That was when the campus first was built. Um, really great program. It was really about leadership. And I think that's what I really appreciated with Pepperdine. It wasn't just about mechanics and here's how to do two plus two equals four. It was about, you know, how do you think? And so part of what I loved about the program was just understanding the history of our country we read Hamilton's uh, Federalist Papers. We read the Constitution over and over. We had to memorize it, in fact. And I think everything that's happening today, I can go back and explain with history, right? The reason why we're in this COVID crisis goes back to our history, our unwillingness to be, the unwillingness for tyranny, right? The, the way our country was founded. And um, it all makes sense when you understand history in the past. Yeah. You talked about learning frameworks. Let's talk about that a little bit. So the whole premise of 1980 is just getting us from an analog world to a new world. Um, just going from past to future, just different paradigms are changing. The world's changing very fast. We're just looking at how do we just understand this? It's about sense making, understanding what's happening in the world. Let's look at the past a little bit because you and I grew up in a world before the internet and before mm -hmm. this uh, the phone. I'm holding it up right now, my my iPhone 10 right there. Uh, we lived in a world that didn't exist that. And what's your what's your fondest memory of the, of the past? But I, I do have a lot of great memories of going to the public library as a kid and finding a computer terminal. I mean, to go back even farther, you know, the, my first experience with computers where um, one of my neighbors had, I don't even know what it was, a Commodore or, or something along those lines with just, you know, just basically pixel, pixelated dots that I thought were really good graphics uh, at the time and, and let, learning to play games as a, you know, a really young kid. But then going to the library and discovering the internet you know, kind of on my own, getting to poke around, creating pen pals from around the world, just via email, you know, signing up for 
free email accounts with my favorite radio station. For some reason, they were hosting email at the time. For for us, like a lot of our audience, especially if you're in Gen Z, you're, they're digital natives. They grew up in a digital world. You and I are probably the last or the youngest or I don't know what the, the right word is, but we're probably the youngest that remembers a world before the internet, right? Before the pure digital world where I think in the, we talk about library, I remember the Dewey Decimal System and pulling out little cards to look for books. That's a, It was a method for searching. Now I can keyword search and I can find all everything in the world all in my little pocket in the phone. So those paradigms have completely changed the world. And then I think you and I experienced the inception of, I'll call it just the basic inception of the internet, like email for the first time. Like, do you, do you remember your first email? You know, because how do you go from, I don't have any friends with email addresses to sending emails. I'm guessing it would have been to like a DJ or something along those lines and then finding like a pen pal community forum. And then after that, it was going to camp in the summer and, you know, at the end of the week, everyone has a piece of paper and you're writing down all your new friends' email addresses and hoping that you spelled it right and uh, you can read their handwriting so you can keep in contact over the rest of the year. And, and yeah, you were excited yeah. to get an email. I mean, it was it was an excitement. It's like, yeah. oh, my gosh, I got an email coming in. And and now today we're just, we have applications and tools to block email because I have so much coming in. So the world has completely changed in, in that yeah. world since there. So let's talk about just, you know, you we, earlier you talked about just learning frameworks and how, how do you make sense of this world? And I think I, I go back and I look at my past and the velocity of change has just increased significantly, exponentially, right? The amount of information, the amount of data, what we can do, the fact that you and I are recording a podcast remotely, we're not physically in the same room anymore. This technology exists today. And how do you start understanding, Let's uh, with respect to the work that you do, and we'll talk get into the work you do a little bit. How do you understand and make sense of this world? Like, where are we going? You know, I start with going back. You know, any generation feels the same way. I, I, I doubt you could go back to any point in the history of the world and find somebody who didn't say, the invention of the wheel, this is too far. Slow things down. You know, that certainly happened with the telegraph and the train and airplanes. And so, you know, there, there's something about human uh, adaptability that allows us to uh, accept these changes. And, and and honestly, most of the time, I don't even think we realize that we've accepted the change and made the change until we, we hit something that's kind of at the curve of our of our experience. And it's and it's a brand new thing that kind of throws us back and we go, whoa, like TikTok, I don't know what to do with all these videos. I was just getting used to Instagram or whatever it mm -hmm. is that just kind of we got comfortable with something and we're moving forward with that because it's actionable. And then we find out that there's a 15 year old kid that has you know, a million followers uh, that is now cutting edge and, and you're just left in the dirt. So. Exactly. You know, there was a, a great article and I'll, I'll send you the link and I'll post it in the description by Ben Thompson from Stratechery. And it was just the doubling of technology, right? So if you go back at the beginning, let's call it the wheel, right? The invention of the wheel, from the invention of the wheel to the next invention, it was a long period of time. It took a long time to get from one point to another point. And it took, an, and then that, that doubling of technology or the invention of speed and it went half in time and half in time and half in time. And so what he, he says is like, if you go from generation to generation, so you take someone from the, a caveman from back in the day and you move him forward 5,000 years, the world generally looks the same for him, right? Like nothing really has changed much. Now there's fire, there's something new, the, the wheel that's moving around. But for the most part, nothing has changed that much. But then as you accelerate, if you move someone from 400 years ago to today, that's black magic, right? It's it's a witch. They're gonna burn you for for like having yeah. magic. Like you're you're making things appear out of nowhere, and it's completely 
you're not going to be able to recognize the world. The futurist in me says, you know, if I fast forward 50 years from now, I'm not going to be able to absorb this world, right? It's going to be so far advanced from where I am today. I'm not going to be able to adapt and adjust to it. And so part of my, my fear in that, that piece of there is like, is there, are we resilient enough for this exponential at this hockey curve puck as a perspective right there? No, I agree with you. And I think, I think you bring something really important to mind, um, which is, you know, I do think that we, we do have the ability to adapt and to keep up with, with what we're doing, but at the same time, uh, we are leaving people behind. And, you know, the, the big ethical question for me is how do we bring those people along, whether that's the elderly uh, in a time of COVID-19 or, or just the elderly in general, right? Where if they're, if they're living in nursing homes and families have moved away because their jobs have taken them away, how do we think of them? How do we care for them? Just thinking of marginalized and, and vulnerable people around the world as, as technology moves and as, as jobs become automated and whatnot, how, how do we as, as humanity, as, as business owners, as community members, um, as individuals, how do we think about those people and recognize that when people get left behind and become dissatisfied, that tends to build up some toxicity mm-hmm. in those groups and that leads to lashing out and that yep. leads to radicalism. And so it's it's not only it's it's not only a feel good, let's make sure we didn't leave anybody behind, but there's very practical and very concrete reasons to make sure that as we change and as we move forward that we bring everybody else with us i had this conversation the other day with my wife around automation and just the impact on change right so tesla's working on autonomous cars so uber drivers eventually will go out of business and let's talk about the trucking industry as a good example right the minute we have autonomous 18 wheeler trucks that's driving without human intervention anymore one i see it as a good thing right the fact that we have a human being sitting in a gigantic vehicle going really fast on the highway Probably not the best thing in the world, but those are jobs and those are human beings and they are going to get left behind. And to your point there, I think just one of the biggest challenges of our generation is inclusiveness, getting people up to that curve, moving them along and making sure they're not left behind. Yeah, I mean, I think education is such a huge part of that, right? And and encouraging innovation because, you know, you could probably look at, I mean, the Pony Express, we lost all those jobs, mm-hmm. you know, and that's, that's a, it's a silly idea because it, I mean, a silly example because it's such a small, you know, group of people that, that ever did it for such a short period of time, but you know, technology improved and they lost their jobs. Was that a bad thing or a good thing? Well, if you were riding the Pony Express, I'm sure it didn't feel like a good thing, although it was a very dangerous job. Yeah. Then you were able to get a job at the telegraph or at the train. And so, you know, it's, it's really thinking of it, not in terms of replacing jobs and putting people out of work, but you know, how does, how does new technology um, and, and isn't technology anyways, the, you know, the, the way we kind of use the term, it really just means the newest thing. Mm-hmm. But a technology could be a, a fork. You right. know, it's just we don't think of it as technology today because yep. it's it's already the wheel was technology. Right. Yeah. The yep. wheel was technology. So it, it's thinking through how do we encourage more innovation and enable people to start their own businesses and think through you don't have to become the next Amazon. There, there's power in local mm-hmm. and there's power in in uh, small businesses and just meeting, you know, one need in your community for one really segmented group of people that all of a sudden, you know, you've ingrained your business into their lives and you can start hiring people and uh, creating those jobs that are like unlikely to be replaced, yep. you know, in the near future. Pepperdine was about free market capitalism, right? It was a free market uh, yep. philosophy there. Uh, I think as we're getting to this space here and as we're starting to automate certain things, I, I like I'm starting to really land on the prospect of universal basic income. Right. Just making sure mm-hmm. there's a baseline level of comfort for all. Right. Especially as we're removing jobs or transitioning the economy around. I, I mentioned that because I want to segue a little bit into your professional world. You work at World Vision. 
most people like that may not remember who World Vision is. I only remember World Vision growing up as a little kid and seeing the uh, phonathons or telethons, I think, on TV. <laughs> That's my only re- memory of World Vision. Really, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, I think it was the African children eating water. I remember seeing just the, the, the commercials of uh, imagery of children that were impoverished and how World Vision was helping kind of bring brings, uh, funds to that space. Is that, am I right? Is that my memory? Yeah, correct? I mean, uh, I, I don't know if, if that was if that was a World Vision telethon. It very well could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember those commercials, and I wasn't uh, working for them back then. Um, but yeah, we're a, a global humanitarian organization. Uh, we've been around for seventy years, and we're committed to ending extreme poverty um, everywhere we work, which is in about a hundred countries. Yeah, and so most people probably know us for child sponsorship. Um, or maybe our, our recent ah, chosen. There we go. Child sponsorship. That's that's it. Yeah. Yep. yep. Yeah. Which is you know it's it's thirty you know thirty five thirty nine dollars a month, um, and you get to build a relationship with a child in the developing world, huh. uh, and in your money it doesn't go you know you're not putting cash in the kid's wallet you're actually building their community and providing education and clean water and health services and everything that they need to flourish. Um, and that, and, that and program still active today. I mean, like I can go sign today. up and yeah. sponsor a child yeah. today. This is twenty. Yeah. So just last year we. Um, we launched a, a new initiative called Chosen, which which flips the script over on its head. So it used to be where you'd go and you'd, you'd see a wall of of little kids, you know, pictures, and you'd choose the one that you want, um, or online, you know, just choose their pictures. And what Chosen does is it is it allows the child in the developing world to pick their sponsor, uh, which is really cool because wow. it, it just it, it empowers them from day one, right? Where it's it's no longer you know, ooh, please pick me. It's actually, hey, somebody wants you to pick them, and it's it's been a really powerful initiative. When when did that flip happen? Uh, so that just launched last year. Yeah. Um, I think around October, September, October. I'm so drawn to that because again, like the whole premise and foundation of 1980 was anytime when you flip things around, right? So it was just uh, back mm-hmm. back in the growing up in the 80s, that was a very kind of U.S. centric. You know, we have funds and we're going to go save you, a savior mm-hmm. model. Yep. Flip that around, it's like enabling anyone from any part of the, the world to kind of reach up in there and connect to this big machine, right? And it, it's not about yeah. just, it's not about a power dynamic, it's about a global participation. So I, I love that. So how it, do I sign up? Like, how do I guess, yeah. let's, for, for the audience here, like, like, how do you participate? What's the mechanic? What does it look like? Yeah, so you can actually just go to worldvision.org. Um, and, you know, we had it on pause for a while because of COVID. Uh, the, the social distancing issues that, you know, when kids are coming together to pick pick their pictures and whatnot, um, but we just relaunched and you should be able to go to worldvision.org um, and and find a link to chosen there. And it's, it's really simple. You know, you just um, you can upload a photo from your phone or you can take a new picture. You can have your family in the photo um, and then that gets sent overseas. And the kids just look at a bunch of photos and, and pick one that really stands out to them. And, and it's it's crazy. You can you can see some videos um, on our website or on YouTube where it's so powerful uh, where a, a kid picked, you know, picks this a picture of this woman because it looks like her mom and then you find out that the person she chose you know had recently lost her mom uh, or a little girl wants to be a lawyer when she grows up chooses a picture and it happens to be a lawyer and so um just the the, the connections that happen are, are, are just so beautiful and and really you know that's not the only way we try to flip the script um you you made a great point you know we're not trying to be the americans who saved the world um as as a global organization 95 percent of our staff are local. So wow. if we're working in, in Kenya, mm-hmm. it's it's 
primarily Kenyans doing the work. If we're working in Afghanistan or um, Honduras, it, it's really we're work where we have local staff because that's the only way to make it sustainable. You can't you can't go into someone else's country and culture and expect to uh, improve things if you're an outsider. So that that's another way we really try to flip the script. That's really incredible. We're in the middle of 2020. And right now, President Trump is kind of very, we're very nationalist. Like right now, there's movement towards nationalism, very U.S. centric, uh, closing the borders and isolating ourselves from the world. And I think the U.S. at this moment in time has kind of removed itself from the happenings of the world. But we're not isolated. I think the one thing I learned with COVID is, you know, you're not isolated to just a county or city that you live in. You're part of this global system and I'm part of a state and I'm part of a country and I'm part of a continent. And the reality is like we are all citizens of this planet, right? And I love that work. The, the fact that the fact that there are people in other parts of the world where there's such a huge span between poverty and extreme wealth, and it seems like there's a reckoning coming soon at some point. But yeah, well, and I would also say, you know, even though at a political level there's changes, I think we still live in such a generous country mm-hmm. uh, where so many individuals, you know, regardless of political stance, are still willing to. Um, invest in in improving lives around the world, whether it's because of a, a personal or religious belief, or or just because they recognize that it makes the world safer. You know, mm-hmm. when we provide opportunities um, uh, for the rest of the world who, who's watching us as as a global leader, it does make the world safer. And, and it's not just individuals; it, it's corporations too. Um, I lead our, our marketing for um, with, for corporations and foundations, and there's so many companies that are also doing great work investing in the developing world. Um, it's not just charity. It's also developing a workforce. You know, they want a business that thrives in other countries. So they invest in education in those countries. And um, and it, it really does do a lot of good. And it really makes a difference over the long term. Got it. I, I launched 1980 with the intent of making this a do good business. Right. And I have a goal of eventually becoming a B Corp. Are, are you seeing a trend as companies like is it? it's a competitive advantage? I guess this changing trend, changing generations, millennials, especially Gen Z, I think is another generation where they're, they're they're not okay with corporations just pure profiting and then they want corporations to be a part of this global system or be a part of some 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 better good. Oh yeah, uh, 100%. You know, I was just on a webinar this morning um with a a, a professor from Pepperdine, uh ironically, uh and we were talking about about CSR and and trends in the workplace and you know, it's it's something like 87% of consumers would switch to a brand that was affiliated with a cause. Um, so, you know, with World Vision, we work with with companies to, you know, donate 10, 10 cents for every bottle of water bought or something. So if you have two bottles on a shelf and one donates to a good cause and one doesn't, consumers are going to buy the one that donates to a good cause. So um, just from a very pragmatic bottom line standpoint, uh, you know, yes, that's that's it's competitive advantage. Um, I would argue that in a time like like right now with a lot of businesses struggling um, and really trying to figure out how to survive shelter at home and, and the pandemic, um, it's more important than ever to really drill into to, um, corporate social responsibility strategies. But the, you know the, the trick is you can't just you can't just tag it on to what you're doing. I think I think Pepsi saw that with their mm-hmm. Kendall Jenner Black Lives Matter commercial a couple of years ago, yep. where they received a bunch of negative press um, and consumers didn't buy it because it mm-hmm. was fake. We could contrast that with you know we did a project with Walmart um, where they invested in, uh, 60,000 of their, uh, employees, female employees in the developing world in 150 factories to provide education and, and, um, you know, problem solving skills and, 
uh, just a, a diverse array of um, of skills and opportunities. And the result for Walmart was they saw you know a twenty something percent increase in productivity and um, you know decrease in in turnover for their employees. But then from a from a human standpoint, you know what what we also saw um, and Tufts University did a research project on this was things like less domestic violence in the home Be- because you know when when you think of the causes that drive people to that sort of behavior, it has to deal with I don't have coping skills, I don't know how to deal with um, high stress or with a, a harsh work environment or my manager is abusive, so I take that home. And so when when companies are able to invest in that sort of um, workforce workforce education or, or training, it, it just reaps dividends up and down the supply chain and with their consumers. Um, and, and I think more and more companies are seeing that. Harvard Business Review actually just published a study uh, not long ago showing that socially responsible companies outperform the, the S&P 500, you know, significantly. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I really don't see a reason not to, yeah. uh, to be socially responsible. You just have to be strategic. You know, you have to make it part of your business model and not just let's try to trick people into thinking we're a good company. <laughs> and then I think it becomes incredibly clear, right? The companies where they embed it within the fabric of their DNA of the, their company, so corporate social responsibility, racial equity, whatever you're picking as your kind of lens that you're going to lead with. Uh, a lot of companies where they just check the boxes and ancillary thing, it just, it's, they're throwing money away or, or eventually it's actually, it could hurt you. Um, it can, yeah, yeah. For sure. And so, like, hey, we're uh, starting to wrap up. I wanted to kind of, this be a very pandemic version we're all working from home. What's it like for you working from home in this organization? Were you working uh, on site before and, and now you're transitioning to home office? Uh, you know, strangely enough, our, our, our U.S. headquarters is just outside of Seattle. Um, but uh, my wife and I moved to Nashville in January. So right before everything shut down, we moved across the country to a new city and I started working from home. So for me, the transition, it's actually made things a little better for me because now everybody is is on a level playing field. Yeah. You got a head start. <laughs> And, and so was that was that part of the uh, the company and that was they were open to remote work. Yeah, they were open to remote work. Yep. Got it. Got uh, it. Which you know, which I was great, very grateful for. And now, now that everyone's working from home, it's uh, it feels pretty normal. You know, my, my wife and I just had a baby, um, mm-hmm. so I, I just came off paternity leave, and um, so it, it's been it's been really nice to to have working from home and then having a kid and, and now um, I get to have a kid and work from home. So I, I love that you uh, said it's really nice because I think for most parents in this pandemic, I think the pandemic is excessively hitting people that are, it's hitting essential workers, probably the hardest of course. Um, but also just parents and the fact that you are trying to raise a child in the middle of this pandemic, you're slightly lucky. You have, you have a young one that's not in school yet. So you're not yeah. school is so far away. You're not even worrying about it yet. Yeah. 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 And we're starting from scratch, right? We're not used to having our kid in school and now we have to figure out what to do. It's this kid showed up in the middle of a pandemic. So that's par for the course. Well, you get the, the kid and, and you and your family are going to be really resilient. I think in, in hindsight, I'm looking back and finally fully embracing the pandemic. And I think this is probably a great moment for us as a globe, as a country, um, just being more resilient. Like we were just on this crazy yeah. path of just consume, consume, consume mindlessly. Um, this is really forcing all of us to slow down, pause, think about, you know, what's important to us. And for me, hey, you know, I'm going to go to worldvision.org and sign up and subs- uh, sponsor a, a child today. Yeah, well, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. Well, Russ, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I hope you can come back at some point in the future. And it was great talking to you today. 